And let's turn to our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter number 8 this morning. 1 Samuel chapter number 8. Let me say what a blessing it is to have everyone here this morning. I have all of our visitors here. You're an encouragement to us. Good to see all of our home folk as well. 1 Samuel chapter number 8 this morning. And uh, in this passage of Scripture, to give you a little idea of where we're at, uh, for many long years, uh, the nation of Israel has been governed over by what we would call a theocracy. God has been the king over the nation of Israel. He has redeemed them unto himself, purchased them out of Egypt's darkness by the blood of the Passover lamb, by a high hand brought them out of the bondage that they as a people had experienced and led them over through the Red Sea and into the land of Canaan. And he has functioned as their king effectively over them. The word of the Lord was their law and their governance and God was administrating that in their lives. And uh, the Bible teaches us that throughout this period of time there are a couple of offices that God would use to administer that. And the most predominant is the judge. In the Old Testament there was a period of time associated, we often think of with the Old Testament book of Judges in which God would raise up a judge over the land of Israel. Now, this wasn't somebody that wore a black robe and a, and a powdered wig and sat and administered legal, uh, you know, procedures, but rather it was somebody that God would raise up to call the people back to Him and to deliver them from their oppressors and from their enemies. Well, the Bible teaches how that the children of Israel went through a succession and series of these judges. That in even of itself is an interesting study to look at how that mankind consistently fails the Lord. You know, if you feel like you failed the Lord this morning, I just want to remind you that the Bible is rich with examples of men that failed the Lord. That's in human nature to fail the Lord. If you failed God, you're not the first person ever to fail the Lord and to disappoint the Lord and grieve the heart of the Lord. And in fact, the book of Judges is largely focused on this cycle of, of Israel. Their heart would wander from God. They would begin to worship uh, idols. They would begin to live in all manner of debauchery and, and all manner of disobedience towards God. And God would deliver them into the hands of their enemies. And they would become oppressed, they would become afflicted, and God would use that affliction and oppression in their life to bring them to their awareness of their sin. And so they would then cry out unto the Lord, you know, the Lord's always gracious and merciful. He would hear and He would send a judge that would deliver them from their oppressors. Well, this has been the order of things for many long years in the nation of Israel until we come to 1 Samuel chapter number 8. Samuel is the prophet for the nation and he is the judge over the nation. He has been the voice of God and he has been uh, God's sword and God's arm in the world and in the nation uh, for a number of years. The Bible tells us, we'll begin reading our text in 1 Samuel chapter number 8, verse number 1, that it came to pass when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. It's interesting. God didn't make them judges. Samuel made them judges. And I'll say this. We get into a lot of problem uh, when men start to do things that it's only God's position to do. Samuel made them judges. And, and the Bible says, now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of uh, his second, Abiah, and they were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, 
Thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice. Howbeit, yet protest solemnly unto them, and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest, and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. He will take your fields and your vineyards and your oliveyards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. Ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel heard all the words of the people, And he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. We'll stop there and pray. Father, we love you. Lord, thank you for the word of God. It's exactly what we need this morning. Lord, I pray that we would have our hearts open to the truth of it. This word won't change anyone in this room if they won't allow the word of God to. Lord, people might have come to church for all sorts of reasons this morning. But, Lord, you brought them here for another reason. You have a desire to work in their heart and in their mind. Lord, there could be some under the sound of my voice that are unsaved. They've never received Christ as their Savior. Whatever religion they have, they have no relationship with you. And, Lord, I'm confident from the testimony of your word that you want to change that in their life today. That you love them, that you gave your son to die on Calvary for them. Lord, not that they could have a fake Christianity but that they could know you in the reality of your presence and power. And I pray you'd show them that this morning. Lord, there could be some that are being drawn away. The tempter has come by their house and is alluring them and is trying to lure them away. Lord, maybe from obligations, commitments, and consecration, maybe just from their love of you. Lord, I pray that the work of the tempter would be thwarted today. Lord, I pray that you would draw and win them back unto yourself, Lord, in in sincerity and in humility and in devotion. And Lord, there could be some just struggling, just having a hard time. They're 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 weighed heavy below their burdens. They don't know what to do. They feel discouraged. Lord, I pray through your word and through your spirit, you'd encourage them this morning. Now, Lord, there could be a number of other needs. And I trust the spirit of God to do the work that no man can do in hearts this morning. 
And we'll be sure to give you the glory. Lord, you'll be deserving of it. Not me, not our church, not our singers, Lord, not our teachers, not any of us. But all glory belongs to you for what's done this morning. And we'll be sure to thank you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I want to read to you again the phrase the children of Israel use in verse number 19. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us. That's an interesting statement that the children of Israel make for two reasons. One, because it is indisputably true. It's interesting that they would say it in this fashion. Now, I'm not uh, unaware of the fact that what they meant is that we choose to have a human king. We desire to have a human king. We will have no other way than to have a human king. But whether intentionally or inadvertently, they spoke a profound truth when they made this petulant declaration of what they desired. They said this, we will have a king over us. Now, what they probably meant is we demand a king for us. But it's interesting because, you know, the situation of every human being, everyone in this room, but everyone that walks this earth, is that we all have someone ruling over us. Christ made this statement in Matthew chapter number 6. He said, no man can serve two masters. That's interesting. He, he did not even entertain the notion that a person would serve no masters. He said, you're going to serve somebody. You just can't serve two somebodies. He says, no man can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. And then he tells us what our choices in life are. He says, ye cannot serve God and mammon. Now that's an interesting word, the word mammon. It's not a common word that we use nowadays. But it literally denotes that which is temporal or earthly or fleshly. We could probably use the word carnal as we describe it. And the Lord Jesus taught his followers that it was impossible to have a dual loyalty or a divided loyalty in the life of the believer if they wanted to be happy and if they wanted to successfully serve the Lord. But they had to be singular in their devotion. And he essentially says this, somebody's going to run your life. Your choice is not will somebody or won't somebody. Your choice is who will govern your life. The children of Israel are in many ways in our text faced with the same situation. Who's going to govern our nation? I want you to notice a few things in our text before we get into the real message this morning. What led up to this moment in Israel's history where they are craving an earthly king, where they are despising the Lord as their king, and where they're looking for a change of leadership? Notice verse number one, the Bible says this, it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel and the name of his second Abiah and they were judges in Beersheba. The Bible says in verse three, his sons walk not in his ways means they didn't do what daddy did. Samuel was a godly man. 
uh, Samuel's testimony in Scripture, and there are mistakes and there are stains on his testimony, but not very many of them. Certainly far less than could be said about my life or probably about your life as well. He was a godly man. Uh, He listened to the Lord. He loved the Lord. He labored for the Lord. But his children didn't. Can I tell you this? At the end of the day, I do believe that the most influential thing in the life of a child is the parent. We do much to raise our children for the Lord, and we should do much to raise our children for the Lord. But your parenting does not annihilate their free will. They will make choices in life. And it's possible for good parents, and it's possible for godly parents, to have children that choose to do wrong in life. Say, preacher, how do you know that? Well, because I've seen it. I've seen it in many occasions in people's lives. And I don't say that to discourage any parent in the room, but I do say it to say merely this. At the end of the day, we're all accountable for our own choices in life. So they chose to not do as their father had done. They walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment and then ran for senator. No, that's not what it says, but it probably could. When I read this passage of Scripture... I am struck by the problem that they were trying to solve. You know, a great many of our catastrophes in life are due to us either trying to solve problems that are not really problems or us trying to solve problems that are problems but trying to solve them in our own way and without the Lord's help and without the Lord's instruction. I see the problem in this passage. Notice, number one, the nation was dysfunctional. The Bible says that they perverted judgment. You might say, well, preacher, that's not a big deal. Every politician is corrupt. And while I would certainly agree with that, many of the problems in our society today are due to the corruption of our system. It's due to the fact that the law is slack and judgment never goeth forth. It's due to the fact that we live in a society where increasingly so, laws are only applied to those who have the misfortune of not having powerful friends to protect them from the punishment of those laws. And when that happens, a nation will grow dysfunctional. Get to a place people lose confidence in the ideal of that nation, in the system of that nation, in the, in the entity of that nation, and people will grow increasingly disillusioned. If you really want my opinion, I believe much of the corrupting of our law and our society that we live in today is done intentionally with that express outcome as the purpose of. It's not just that they want to get people out of jail. It's not just that they want to let people get away with things. Certainly they do, and it's convenient that they always have people, uh, friends, uh, whom they will allow uh, to get away with things. But the real purpose is to cause us to lose faith in the concept of our country. Cause us to become nihilists and anarchists and, and to disassociate ourselves with any social cohesion with each other. To give up on this thing we call society or community or whatever you want to describe it as. And here in the nation of Israel, we see in the in, in germ form, in the infant days, that the nation was growing dysfunctional. Now you say, well, preacher, that's an interesting political commentary, but what does that have to do with my home and my heart and, and my life? Well, I would say this in many ways. The nation of Israel, though they're unique and distinct from the New Testament church, uh, they remind us they're God's people. And you and I today, we're God's people. And so our lives can likewise become dysfunctional. And you know in your life sometimes your Christianity will become dysfunctional. Now that's no fault of God's. God didn't appoint these boys to be judges. Samuel appointed these boys to be judges. And he tried to take a duty and make it a dynasty. And he tried to vest it in his own bloodline, in his own energy, and in his own work, and in his own ability. And it failed. 
And in your life, in your Christianity, listen, when you try to take it from being a duty to a dynasty and you try to make it the expression of your energy and you make your Christianity about you and about your ability and about your talents and about your desires and your ambitions, it won't be long and your Christianity will grow dysfunctional. The nation was dysfunctional. But then look at verse 4. The Bible says, Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel under Ramah and said unto him, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now, while certainly this wasn't a kind thing to say to Samuel, I don't believe this was merely a, a playground scorn or mockery. I think they were expressing their displeasure. And as soon as the nation grows dysfunctional, it grows dissatisfied. And I've known many Christians in their life that uh, when they quit living for God, they grow unhappy. There's nothing broken about that. If you're saved by the grace of God and you're not living for God, you should be unhappy. And I don't mean that in the sense that I want you to be unhappy. I just mean something would be wrong if you could be a Christian and not live for God and still be happy. And so they grow dissatisfied. They say, we're not happy with the state of things. We're not pleased with the state of things. And you know, your unhappiness could be because the world's conspiring against you. It could be because you don't have enough people that are helping you achieve your hopes and goals and dreams. Or it could be because you've sought satisfaction in something other than Christ and found that it's not all that satisfying. They are dissatisfied. They are unhappy. We don't need to be terrified of dissatisfaction because often until we're dissatisfied with our situation, we won't go to the Lord that can satisfy us. So here the nation is dysfunctional and it's dissatisfied, but then they make a mistake. The problem was not that they were grieved by the corruption of their society. The problem was not that they were grieved by the failure of their nation. The problem was that when faced with that, they made the wrong choice. What they should have said is they should have looked at Samuel and said, Samuel, I love your boys. They're wonderful people, but they don't belong in power. I I don't hate them. I don't despise them. But we need to get back to doing this God's way and asking for God's blessing and seeking God's help in our nation. That would have been the right thing to do. But, you know, they did what a lot of Christians today do. They'll be unfaithful to the Lord. Their Christianity will grow dysfunctional. They'll become dissatisfied. And then instead of having an ounce of self-examination, an ounce of introspection, an ounce of humility to say, maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I took a wrong turn at Albuquerque. Maybe I went a wrong direction. They'll instead foolishly charge God and say, it must be God that has failed me. That's what the children of Israel do. They say this at the end of verse 5, Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So the nation was dysfunctional. It was dissatisfied, but then we see they were deceived. They came up with the wrong solution to a very real problem. If you're miserable in your Christianity today, that's a real problem. You should do something about that. Uh, I, I'm a fan of Christianity uh, being filled with joy, being something we enjoy. You'd be amazed how many people are offended at people enjoying Christianity. Just breaks up their worldview. <laughs> Tears them completely out of frame. The idea that Christianity could be enjoyed. I think God intended for us to enjoy Christianity. And if you're miserable in your Christianity, something is wrong. But the problem is not with God. And the problem is not with Christianity. The problem is in your life and in your choices. 
They should have looked at it and said, well, something's wrong. Let's go to God to fix it. But instead they said something's wrong. It must be God that broke it. Let's run away from Him and try to fix it on our very own. I see the problem in this passage. But then I see the prayer in this passage. Verse 6. The Bible says, but the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So what did Samuel do? The Bible says Samuel prayed unto the Lord. Samuel, for all of his mistakes, obviously you can see even in our text that he was a human being, and he made mistakes. He had one wise characteristic about his life. He was a firm believer in prayer. His life begins with prayer. He's there because of prayer. And he learned as a young man to pray and to seek God. And in fact, his name, it means heard of God. Prayer was a big deal in Samuel's life. So Samuel does the right thing. When when something's wrong... He prays and he says, Lord, what's wrong and how do we make it right? You know what I love? The Bible says this, that the Lord said unto Samuel. I see there's a word of counsel in this passage. Listen, you don't have to grope around in the darkness of of your life trying to figure out what's wrong. God will tell you what's wrong if you'll be humble enough to come to him and ask him what's wrong. And if you'll be honest enough to listen to him when he gives you an answer. God answers when Samuel prays. Samuel says, we've got a problem, Lord, what do we do? And there is a word of counsel that is given. But then verse number 7, the Bible says, The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them, according to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. There's a word of condemnation that's given. God says, the problem's not with me, the problem's with you. Now that's why many of us don't want to pray and ask the Lord's opinion is we really don't want to hear it. Because a great many of us know what it's going to be before He ever opens His mouth. So often we know what's wrong in our life and we are unwilling to fix it and that's why we don't want to ask God about it. Don't you just hate asking somebody for advice and them giving it to you? That terrible? Why can't people just be a friend? Amen. And often we don't want to ask God because we don't really want the answer because we know what the answer would be. So God gives the answer. It's a word of condemnation. But then notice verse 9. The Bible says, Now therefore, this is the Lord speaking unto Samuel. This is the advice God gives Samuel. It's what he commands him to do. He says, Now therefore, hearken unto their voice. And you say, Well, preacher, shouldn't God have stopped them? No, God respected their choice. God respected their choice. He said, If you want to do this, I, I won't stop you from doing this. Because even if he had stopped them from doing that, it wouldn't have caused them to do the right thing. You know, sometimes you can stop people from doing the wrong thing and that don't make them do the right thing. Are you listening to me, parents? Sometimes, even with your kids, you can stop them from doing the wrong thing, but that doesn't make them do the right thing. And if the sum total of what you view as parenting is merely stopping them from doing the wrong thing without teaching them by explanation and by example how to do the right thing, then you've missed what it really is. And so he says, hearken unto their voice. But he says this, how be it, yet protest solemnly unto them. And show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. I see there's a word of caution in this passage. Here's what God says. I'm not going to stop them from doing it, but I'm going to tell them what it's going to be like. I'm going to tell them what it's going to be like. And I'm glad the Lord is honest enough with us to tell us what it'll be like. Oftentimes when you're speaking to someone that likes to think themselves a friend and you're telling them about bad choices you might be getting ready to make in life, they'll tell you the best possible outcome. And they'll sit and dream with you about what might be the, the eventuality of it and they'll, they'll be hopeful with you and, and they'll be encouraging of you and they'll be supportive of you. And I'm just glad God doesn't do that. 
I'm glad God, I'm going to say it again. It's a funny thing. You know, sometimes a doctor, when a doctor is giving you an examination, you know, he'll be poking and prodding and hitting you with little hammers and stuff. And, and he'll get, and, and if he gets somewhere and you wince, he'll stop and back up and say, what happened there? Now, I don't know if you realize this, but when a preacher's up preaching and you wince, that don't make us move on. That makes us linger. We want to see what, what went wrong there. I'm glad God doesn't do that to us. God is not the president of your fan club. He's not here to tell you how great you are, and He's not here to support you no matter what you do. Because some things you want to do will destroy you, and they'll hurt you, and they'll harm you. So God says, go ahead, they're going to do what they're going to do, but Samuel, pitch a fit about it. Get mad about it. Protest solemnly over it. Don't be happy for them. Don't clap for them. One of the most corrosive things you'll ever hear in your life. I've heard this so many times in the past five, ten years on social media and in modern psyche and culture. People say, well, when you succeed, look around and see who's clapping for you. Those are your friends. Have you ever heard anyone say that? I've seen this sentiment, maybe said in slightly different words, but this sentiment expressed many times. Hey, listen, they might not be clapping for you because they're jealous. They might not be clapping for you because they despise you. They might not be clapping for you because they're against you. Or they might not be clapping for you because they know what you're excited about is going to destroy you. Uh, so, mm, I got a message. We got to preach here in a minute. Social media has has created a culture where all we want are fan clubs. We just want people to just sit around and clap for whatever decisions we make. You don't need that. You need people that love you enough to tell you the truth. You need people that love you enough to not be excited over your sin and happy for your sin. To not applaud for you because they want the dopamine hit of your approval, but instead love your soul enough to tell you the truth when you're doing something wrong. I'm glad the Lord, He says, Samuel, go ahead. They're going to do what they're going to do, but you protest solemnly unto them. So here in this passage, there's a problem, but they try to solve it the wrong way. And there is a prayer in this passage. Samuel goes to the Lord and the Lord gives instruction. But then I would notice this this morning, there is a picture in this text. There's a picture in this text. So, well, preacher, how is there a picture in this text? Well, we know who the king that God will allow them to to sit on the throne is. His name is Saul. He's an Old Testament king. And while David was God's choice for uh, the children of Israel and God would bless and honor the reign of David, it would actually be Saul that would first sit on the throne in the nation of Israel. But here's the question I have for you this morning. Not who is this king in our text, because we know who this king is that Samuel begins to describe. He is King Saul. But I'd ask this question, who is this king in our life? You see, as I apply it to my life and to your life, the question is, here's God and I can make Him king of my life and I should. But there is another choice or another option. There is a temptation to make another entity king in my life. Who is that king? Well, it's interesting. You know, the book of Romans sort of lays it out for us. What we can allow to take the authority of God away in our life and to become sort of the king over our life. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6 verse 12. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. Now that word reign, that's a, that's a kingly word. It's what a king does. He reigns over something. He has rule. He has authority. Paul says sin will reign over you if you allow it to. He says you shouldn't allow it to. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey it in the lusts thereof. 
Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. You see the choices laying before you. You can yield your members as instruments of unrighteousness, or you can yield yourself as members of righteousness unto God. He says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. Paul says, if you allow it to, sin will rule over your life. But you shouldn't allow sin to rule over your life. You shouldn't bow the knee before sin. You shouldn't kiss the ring of sin. You shouldn't uh, uh, bow yourself before sin. But instead, you should let the Lord be king over your life. Here's how I would say it, as plain as I know how, that in this passage, Saul reminds me of the flesh. In other words, man's broken, fallen nature and its fruit, which is sin. You see, it is not only the sin or the activity, but it's the part of us that is tempted to sin. The Bible teaches that every one of us, we have within us, if we're saved by God's grace, we have within us actually two people. We have the old man and the new man. There is the flesh and there is the spirit. And in your life, you have a choice to make. You say, preacher, I'm going to live my life my way. Well, Whose way is your way? Whose way is your way? And so, who are you going to yield yourself to in your life? Are you going to let the flesh govern your life and allow sin to dominate your life? Or are you going to allow the Lord to run your life and the Spirit of God to administer your life? Now, I want you to look with me in our text. And I want to preach to you on this thought. We will have a king over us. And I want to notice three things that the Bible says about Saul that can also be applied to your flesh and can be applied to sin in your life as well. Look in our text. The Bible says in uh, verse number 10. Let me find it here. Verse number 10. Now Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king. And I want you to notice this next phrase, that shall reign over you. You know, here's the problem with the children of Israel with their perspective. They thought a king would bring them more liberty, not less liberty. Now, Really, to be honest, in a purely historical and narrative sense, it'd be hard to fault them. They looked at the corrupted, perverted judgment in the nation of Israel at the time, and they saw how a man couldn't get anything done without having to grease someone's palm and without having to corrupt his own convictions and his own character. And they thought to themselves, we're tired of being under the yoke of these oppressive sons of Samuel. But if we had a king, that king would liberate us, and then we could really live and do as we would like to do. The Bible describes the book of Judges, and you might say, well, preacher, how do you know that that's really what they thought? Because in the book of Judges, which immediately predates this passage of Scripture, the Bible says every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Now, that's both a commentary on their legal system at the time, but it's also a commentary on the heart of man. They didn't want a king because they thought he was going to make more laws. They wanted a king because they thought he'd make less laws. And they didn't want a king because they thought they could do less. They wanted a king because they thought they could do more under a king. And they were under the delusion that if they had a king, their life would be better. In other words, they took the dissatisfaction they felt, ascribed it to the Lord, and said if we could get away from the Lord, our life would be better. Boy, this is a a masterful sleight of hand that the devil does in a person's life. To ensnare you in sin, and listen, the devil didn't make you do it, you chose to do it. 
but to mire you in sin, cause you to uh, disrupt your fellowship with the Lord, to be miserable in your Christianity, and then turn around and blame God and say, God's who made you unhappy. You're a Christian, so it must be God, must be Christ that made you unhappy. And then come to you and say, now what you need to do is you need to cast off the shackles of God and you need to live in true liberty. And all the while, He's polishing those chains. All the while, He's fitting those manacles right around your wrists. And about the time that you hear Him snap closed is when He'll step back and laugh at you and say, I finally got you where I wanted you. You see, they thought if we have a king... Our life will be better. Samuel warns them. He says, here's what's going to happen. God has been reigning over you. God has been ruling over you. A heavenly father, a perfect God that loves you unconditionally. But this king, this new king that you have, he's not going to set you free. He's going to put you in chains. He's not going to let you go. He's going to hold you down. He is going to reign over you. Let me say number one this morning, he would supplant God's authority in their life. He'll reign. The Lord was the one that was supposed to be reigning over them. But instead, Saul would become the one that would reign over them and the children of Israel would suffer as a consequence of it. Listen, if you think for one minute sin is going to set you free, you're wrong. You're wrong. I'm not going to try to say it any cuter than that. You're dead wrong. Sin won't make you happy. Sin won't set you free. If you think living your life according to the flesh and what you want, what you desire to do is going to make you happy, you are wrong. It will not. It will put chains on you instead. Now, all of a sudden, they lost God as king, and they got a terrible king. When we read the testimony of the life of Saul, we learn some things about both what the flesh and sin does in the life of the believer. I'd make three statements about him and move on. Number one, when we read our text, we learn that he was a carnal king. Saul was not a good king. In fact, one of the hallmarks of Saul's reign was whenever the children of Israel had slain the Amalekites, Uh, an ancient enemy of the children of Israel. And God had commanded the children of Israel that they take all the spoils and give it to God, that God had given them the victory and that they were to take all those spoils and not take them to themselves, but instead give God the first fruit and yield them unto the Lord. The Bible teaches us how that Saul, in direct contradiction and disobedience to God's Word, he so lusted after the spoils of the battle that instead his people fell upon them and they claimed them unto themselves. In other words, Saul had an appetite for temporal things. He had an appetite for fleshly things. He had an appetite for carnal things. And I want you to listen carefully. He loved things more than he loved God. You know, the problem with your flesh is it loves things more than it loves God. It doesn't love God. The Bible says the natural man is not subject unto God, neither indeed can be. And your flesh, every time you listen to your flesh, it will never choose God. It will always choose something else. He was a carnal king. But then I would say, number two, he was a craven king, a cowardly king. One of the sad pictures in the testimony and the reign of the uh, king Saul is when the Philistines are encamped against the children of Israel, another ancient foe of Israel, and, and the battle is set forth and they're encamped against them and they're getting ready to, to slay them. And the Bible says that Saul, instead of being down at the forefront of the battle, that he is back in Gibeah, which is his home, and that he is set up under a pomegranate tree. Good reason to not like pomegranates. Somebody say amen. <laughs> I don't know. You like them if you want. I don't care. Too many seeds. Yeah, I'm with you. In other words, when the king should have been out fighting the battles and protecting, he was instead hiding and seeing to his own self. 
You know, part of the reason that you can't trust the flesh, the flesh won't fight the real battles that matter in your life. The flesh will always, listen, the battles that you have to fight in your life for you to be happy and to please the Lord and, and to be consecrated unto Him and for your life to count and for your life to matter, the flesh will never fight those battles. The flesh is like those friends we talked about a little while ago that wants to clap for you no matter what you're doing. That wants to make you feel like you're good and feel like you're okay. It's funny, one of the things that's been very popular in society for the past maybe 40 years has been the self-esteem movement. And there's been much that's been said about bolstering a child's self-esteem and trying to teach them and tell them how wonderful and how special that they are. But you know, the real problem in society is not low self-esteem. The real problem is high self-esteem. The problem is not that we think too little of ourselves, it's that we think too much of ourselves. Well, I don't want anybody to be able to feel bad about themselves. I will tell you this, the problem, the danger is not that you'd feel too bad, but that you'd feel too good about yourself. The Bible says no man ever yet hated his own flesh. And the Word of God, one of the precious things it does is it gets honest with us and it tells us what's wrong in our life. The Word of God, the sword of the Spirit, fights battles that we would never fight on our own. And God's Word tells us where we've sinned and tells us where we're wrong, tells us where we're prideful, tells us where we're broken, tells us where we need help and healing. It shows us what's wrong in our life. But when you let sin in your life and when you let the flesh govern your life, it will never tell you what's wrong in your life. It's scared of the conflict. It's scared of the battle. It's scared of being uncomfortable. He was a carnal king and he was a craven king. But when we read in our Bible, we learn this, that he was a cruel king. Now, somebody might say, well, preacher, maybe King Saul, he was just averse to bloodshed. Maybe he just couldn't stomach the sight of a battlefield. And I would say this, that a king that can't stomach it don't belong with a crown on his head in the first place. But also, when we read our Bible, we learn that couldn't have been the case with Saul because when it served him, he could be very vicious. Uh, time could be spent looking at his treatment of David and the cruelty in his life. But I would instead point you to the slaughter of 80 priests in a little place called Nob. Word had reached Saul that Ahimelech, the priest, had helped David and had allowed him provision. And, and Saul, in his paranoia, he believed that the priesthood had turned against him and and so in cruelty, here's what he did. He took, he slew 82 priests, cut them down and slew them because he believed that they were set against him. He was a cruel man, Saul was. He was not a kind man. I'm sure there were times in the early days of his and David's friendship and, and relationship that he spoke kindly to David. And there were even times in the latter years he spoke kindly to David. But here's what he'd do. At one second, he would speak kindly to David, and the very next, he'd hurl a spear at him. Why? Because he's a cruel individual. He doesn't care about David. Instead, he only cares about himself. And here's the thing. You think your flesh is your friend. You think sin is fun. But I promise you, sooner or later, it may talk sweet to you today, but one of these days, it'll hurl a spear at you. One of these days, it'll cut you. One of these days, it'll show its cruelty to you. So here's the problem with this king. Number one, he would supplant God's authority. But then look at our text. I would say this, not only would this king supplant God's authority, but I want you to notice a theme in our text. Look with me at verse number 11, and I just want to highlight a phrase that's used almost in every verse in this passage of Scripture. Verse 11 says this about this king. It says, he will take your sons. Look at verse 13. He will take your daughters. Verse 14, he will take your fields. Verse 15, he will take the tenth of your seed. 
Verse 16, he will take your men servants. Verse 17, he will take the tenth of your sheep. Do you notice a theme in our text here? They said, give us a king, give us a king, give us a king. Samuel says, God will let you have a king, but here's what he's going to do. God gives, 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 gives to you. But if you make Saul your king, he's going to take, 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 take from you. I would say this about the flesh and about sin. It will not only supplant God's authority, but number two, it will steal God's blessings. You're not ready to pay. You think you are. I'm not trying to be ugly or smart aleck, but I'm just telling you as true as I know how this morning, because I understand, because I've been there. I've been at the moment of temptation. And you think you're ready. You think you've counted it up. You think you've checked the bank account of your patience and your determination. You think you're willing to pay what your sin will cost. But your sin will cost far more than you think you're paying. The thing about sin, it always robs us of God's blessings. What are the kind of things it steals from us? Well, notice verse 11. He says this, he will take your sons. Verse 13 says he will take your daughters. There's probably nothing more precious to a parent than their child, than their son, their daughter. And here's what he says. The first thing he's going to do is the thing that's most precious to you. The thing that gives you the most joy in your life. The thing that you love the most. The thing that makes life worth living to you. He'll take that away from you. I would say here's one of the things that this king will take. He'll, He'll steal your joy. He'll make your life a misery. Psalms chapter 127 says children are an heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. When Saul took their sons and daughters, he was taking their hearts. He was taking their homes. He was taking their laughter and their joy. He was taking what made life pleasurable. Here's the thing. Sin is pleasurable for a season. But it will take from you any real joy that life could give you. You want to be a miserable person? Just yield to the flesh. You'll be a miserable person. I've known a great many of them in my life. Not willing to face the hard decisions in life. Not willing to be honest about themselves. Not willing to choose God over the moment. And they wind up miserable people. They'll steal your joy. And then look at verse 14. It says this. He'll take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. Verse 16 says he'll take your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. All of these things that are listed in verses 14 and 16, they are all resources they have that serve them and benefit them and make their life competent, make their life successful. I would say it this way. He'll not only steal your joy, he'll steal your resources in life. Samuel's telling him right now, you're living and and the fruit of your labor is going to you. But if you have this king over you, here's what's going to happen. He's going to come along and he's going to say, now you're going to have to pay tribute to me. And you'll find as the years go on that the tribute will become more and more and more. He'll take your servants. He'll take your fields. He'll take your vineyards. He'll take your olive yards. And the things that you have that you thought were precious, the things that you enjoyed, the things that meant something to you, he'll take all those things away from you. And they'll be his And they won't be yours. Here's what sin... Listen, sin's expensive. You listen to me? Sin's expensive. I don't know if you've ever seen people whose lives are racked with brokenness, but it ain't cheap. And here's what will happen in your life. What started out as a minor inconvenience to satisfy an evident desire in your life will become your master and you'll become a slave to it. 
You'll get to the place where your whole life is centered around propping up and, and allowing for this sin in your life. You won't be able to do anything. Your whole life will revolve around the maintenance of your bad decision. Before long, everything that you had, you won't have anymore. Everything that you have, it won't be at your disposal anymore. And your entire life will be consumed with having to prop this idol up and prop this thing up, this sin in your life. And, and what you thought was going to give you will actually steal from you. It'll steal your resources. But then look at verse 15. The Bible says this, He will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards, give to His officers and to His servants. And you might say, well, preacher, that, that's interesting. Why does He say that? He's going to take the tenth. Well, here's why I think God reminded them of the importance of this because He wasn't just going to take what belonged to them, but the tenth is the tithe. And they were commanded under the law to give ten percent of what God had given them, bless them with, back to the Lord. And when He talks about them taking the tenth, the Lord's saying, He ain't just going to take what is yours, He's going to take what is mine. He's going to give it to His people. We see it really hit home in verse 17 because he says this, He will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. Now, it's interesting. Undoubtedly, they raised donkeys and, and raised cattle and undoubtedly, they, they raised camels and all sorts of livestock. But he says about this king, he's going to take the tenth of your sheep. Why did God say it that way? Well, the average Israelite, whenever they raised those sheep up, the tenth that they gave to God was the portion that they would bring to the Lord to sacrifice before Him. What He's saying is those sheep that you're raising as an offering to God, those sheep that you're raising that are a gift to God, those sheep that you're raising that when you've sinned and done wrong and you need to be made right with God, those things are what He's going to demand from you. He wasn't just asking for their resources like He was in verses 14 and 16. He was asking for their relationship with God. I would say it this way. He'd steal their joy and their resources, but finally He'd steal their worship. They wouldn't even be able to serve God anymore. They couldn't survive anymore. They wouldn't be able to give their tithe to God because the king demands. They wouldn't be able to raise those sheep and take them to the, to the tabernacle at that time and present them before the priest and give them as an offering unto God or as an expiation before God. They wouldn't be able to do that anymore because the king would demand everything. And here's what would happen. Pretty soon they'd quit going to the temple. Pretty soon they'd quit going to the tabernacle. Pretty soon. Part of the reason they went down uh, at this time, it wasn't Jerusalem. God hadn't said His name there as of yet. But part of the reason they'd go to the tabernacle is they'd bring, whenever they had a harvest, they'd bring the tithe unto the Lord. They'd bring the tenth unto the Lord. In fact, it would have been very rare for a, a, a Hebrew worshiper at that time to ever to go to God without something. They'd always be bringing something to the Lord and there would be something as a foundation and basis of their of their worship and a reason why they had come there. They were bringing something unto the Lord. Well, here's what would happen. When He would take the tenth of everything, they wouldn't have no reason to go to God anymore. And it would kill their worship. You know, by the way, that's part of what the devil wants in this whole process. He wants to kill your worship. He wants to get you away from God. 
Because here in this place where the Word of God is preached and where the people of God encourage one another and where the songs of God are sung here in this place is a place where God can work in your life, where God can oppose the spell that, that Satan weaves over a person's life and over a person's mind. It's a place where the delusion can be shattered. It's a place where truth can break through. It's a place where God can work in people's hearts and minds and lives. So if He can get you out of church, He stands a lot better chance of keeping you under His control. So here's what will happen. The flesh will pull you out of church. Sin will pull you out of church. He'll still supplant God's authority. He'll steal God's blessing. But one final thing, and I'm done. Verse 18. The Bible says this, And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you. Let me just pause there and say this. He said, Today you're crying for him, but someday you'll cry because of him. Today it's what you want more than anything, but there'll come a day when what you'll want more than anything is to be rid of him. Here's the real terrifying statement. He says, And the Lord will not hear you in that day. What will the flesh do in our life? What will sin do in our life? Well, it will supplant God's authority and steal God's blessing. Then we see that it will stifle God's working in our life. Keep God from being able to work in us and through us. Now, I'm glad, hey, listen, where where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. And I'm here to report to you today that it is not the quantity of your sin. uh, It is not the, the severity of your sin. But rather, it is your willingness to yield that sin that determines whether God can work in your life. God doesn't look over this congregation and say, well, they're a pretty good person. I might choose them or or, or they've not made a lot of mistakes. Maybe I can work in their life. That's not how God thinks. God's not scared of the quantity of your sin or or the the depravity of your sin. There's nothing. You wouldn't look down and say, well, I wouldn't save somebody that's done that. No, I listen. He saved a lot worse than than you. And he saved people that have done things worse than what you've done them. I, I don't know what you think about it, but I think that old Roman soldier that stood by and looked up and said, surely this is the son of God. I think probably he came to a saving knowledge of God on that day. And he was the one that had nailed the nails in. Whatever you've done, God will save you. But here's what God can't do, and here's what God won't do. He won't pry your sin from your hands. You're going to have to choose to give it to Him. And the problem with sin is it will stifle God's ability to work in our life. I see the despair they would encounter. He says, today you love this, but there'll come a day you want rid of it. And you know, that's the truth of the matter. A lot of people, uh, even older people that, that, that sometimes can even be petulant and entrenched in their sin, if you could get them to be honest, they'd admit to you that it's not been worth it. They've lived a life of misery and despair and that it's not been worth it. And even not just those that would cling to it, but there's been a great many that I've seen whose uh, hearts have been broken at how they've wasted and squandered the life that God's given them. My preacher used to say, God doesn't have any happy old people. Or Satan doesn't have any happy old people. The Presbyterians say God doesn't have any happy old people. But no, the, that, that Satan doesn't have any happy old people. That's certainly true. You may love it today, but there'll come a day you'll want rid of it. It may be your heart's desire, but there'll come a day that you'll want rid of it. I can't tell you the times that a young person's life has been broken, shattered into a million pieces. And if you'd ask them, they'd say, but I love him so much. But I love her so much. But I love this thing so much. And in that moment, it was all they craved. It was all they desired. It's what they thought they wanted. But then there came a day when it became the source of their misery and despair in their life. God just gives a simple warning. He says, there's going to come a day you're going to wish you was rid of it. You're going to cry out to me and notice the deafness they would encounter. It says, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. 
That's interesting because, you know, the Lord is very gracious. I mean, He's kind to the evil and to the unthankful and His mercies are new every morning. And I don't think God was saying, I'll never hear another prayer in the land of Israel. I don't think that's what He meant. I think when we look at the greater context, they had for 400 years been living through a period of time where they would sin and they would cry out to God and God would hear them. God would send a judge to deliver them and they would be delivered from their oppressor. Thirteen times in the book of Judges, this happens over and over and over again. That they sin, they mess up, they go wrong. And God, when they in their contrition and in their brokenness, they cry out to Him, He sends a judge that delivers them. Here's what He's saying. He's saying, now there's going to be somebody in between me and you. Now there's going to be another party I'm dealing with. And He's saying, there'll come a day you'll cry out, you'll want to be rid of Him. But to be rid of them, I'd have to go back on what I permitted and allowed to transpire in the nation. And he's saying you're setting up a structure here that can't just be done away with in a moment. You know, the problem with sin is it builds things that can't be torn down overnight. The problem with the flesh is it builds things that can't just be torn down overnight. I don't think God's saying, I'll hate you if you make this choice. I don't think God's saying, I won't love you. I don't think God's even necessarily saying, I won't hear your prayers. He's saying, there'll come a day, you'll cry out and you'll say, deliver me. And I won't be able to because of the things that you built in your life won't be something that you just snap a finger and it goes away. There are certain realities of the choices that we make in our life, aren't they? And there's things, listen, there's not a sin you've ever committed that God wouldn't forgive you of this morning. If you come to the Lord, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But there's times, listen, forgiveness, it it doesn't erase every scar. Restoration does not roll back the clock. And if you allow sin to govern your life, there will be things that can't just be undone in a moment. And there will be some things that only heaven will heal. There'll be some things that only a new body will fix because you've allowed the flesh to govern you and you've allowed sin to ruin you and to wreck you and to run you. What he's warning them of is if you do this, there'll be some ways in which God won't be able to work in your life. And there'll be some ways that even when God works in your life, there'll be things you'll have to bear as a consequence of the choices that you've made. Say, preacher, aren't you afraid you'll overburden Someone this morning, no, I'm hoping I'll appropriately burden someone this morning. If you're here and you've got miles of mistakes behind you, you know already by dint of being here that God's grace is sufficient. But I want some of these young people to hear and understand that you can't live your life any way you please and think you won't have consequences. Because you will. And if your idea of the grace of God is that It's just going to erase every consequence of every bad choice that you've made. I'm sorry, God never said that about His grace, and I won't say it that way either. There's consequences to the choices that you make. And because of that, here's what I want to ask you to do this morning. You're going to have a king over you. I want you to choose the right king. I want you to choose the best king. I want you to choose the Lord as king over your life. The sad, tragic end of the story is they don't. They say, no, we want a king over us. And they got a king. And they rude the day because of it. But today, you can make the correct choice. You can make the right choice in your life. You're going to have someone govern your life. Don't buy into the delusion of self. Uh, you know, oh, I'll just run my own life and I'll do my own thing. No, you're going to serve somebody. You're going to serve something. So why don't you serve Christ this morning? If you're lost, here's what that means. It begins by bowing the knee before Him.
It begins by acknowledging, admitting, confessing yourself a sinner before Him and acknowledging you can't save yourself, that you can't fix yourself, but asking God to save you and to forgive you based upon the fact that Christ died in your place and paid your sin debt at Calvary, that He paid a debt that you couldn't pay so that you could partake in grace that you could have never laid hold of yourself and coming and asking Him to forgive you and save you. You don't have to say it in the words, I just said it, but you're going to have to say it. You're going to have to come to the Lord. Uh, You don't have to say it the way I said it, but you're going to have to be willing to come to God. If you'll come to Him, He'll save you. If you're here today and you're saved, you say, well, preacher, I already know the Lord. There's no question in my life. But if I'm to be honest, I've not been living for Him the way that I should. And I've allowed some things to govern my life that aren't Christ and aren't Christ-like. I want to ask you this morning, bow the knee before Him again. And I don't mean get resaved. You don't have to be resaved, but sometimes you have to uh, come to the Lord and say, now, Lord, I've messed up. I've done wrong and I'm sorry. And I, I want to start afresh and anew today serving you and living for you. And he'll let you. And he'll help you too. Here's what I ask. Choose the right king this morning. Let's bow together as a musician comes to play. The altar is open and you don't have to wait for a single note to be played. The altar is open right now. Listen, if God's dealing with my heart, I believe the first thing I'd do is jump up out of my seat, come down to this altar. I wouldn't wait for a piano. I wouldn't wait for anyone else. I'd just come and meet the Lord in the altar. And if God has dealt with your heart about some matter this morning, won't you meet the Lord in this altar? Talk to Him. Be honest with Him about it. Tell Him about it this morning. Just tell Him what's on your heart. Be transparent. Be honest with God this morning. Let Him have His will and way. Father, bless this invitation. Pray and magnify the Lord Jesus. We ask it in His name.